This episode is sponsored by The Path, the coach-guided membership designed to help you make alcohol small and irrelevant in your life by removing your true desire to grab that next drink. Our science-based, compassion-led program allows you not only to shift your behavior and your relationship around alcohol, but more importantly, uncover and reprogram your subconscious conditioning and neural connections that have been keeping you stuck for years. With daily live breakthrough coaching, an intimate and supportive community, regular peer-to-peer connection calls, and a complete vault of resources, this is where your path to total freedom and effortless enjoyment of your new way of life begins. Join us at NakedMindPath.com. Hi, this is Annie Grace, and welcome to this Naked Mind podcast. I'm here with Ben. Welcome, Ben. How are you? I am doing great, Annie. It's so great to finally meet you and have a chance to kind of tell my story today. Oh, so good. Thanks so much for being here. Really awesome. So yeah, why don't you start in the beginning? Where did it all start for you? Well, for me, uh, it kind of started as far as my alcoholism at an early age, around 14, which is normal, you know, even, even amongst today's youth of experimental use. I came from a broken family where my mom and dad were divorced. So as I experimented with it during high school, uh, it just became more and more, I guess, common for me to indulge on the weekends with friends. Uh, Never did I really think that this was going to become a problem, even though that my father, uh, who died a couple years ago, he died from alcoholism and cancer. I never realized that as as I was growing up that that would impact me. And, you know, fast forward, I, I went to college. I decided to pledge a frat. And the drinking just decided to overtake everything that I did. And I basically had to withdraw from college just because I was, I was partying too much and had no direction. And the one thing that I was able to do and that I'm, that I'm very grateful for is I was able to join the United States Air Force. And I, I spent 22 years in the United States Air Force and the Air National Guard here in Montana. And that was pretty much my saving grace uh, as far as giving me a career opportunity and to be able to transform myself throughout the years and uh, be able to move up and advance in my career. But with that being said, there was also a lot of partying that went on early in my, my military career, which is very normal. Um, you're still trying to figure out who you are and where you fit in. And as it progressed throughout, throughout my career and as my wife and I had children, I kind of retro, you know, went back to social drinking. Um, it was really realistic. It was just weekends, holidays, social gatherings, where it wasn't really a problem that I thought at the time. And then until later on in my late in my career, a lot of things were happening as I was getting ready to transition into retirement. And one of the things that had happened is my dad had passed away literally a month after my retirement ceremony. And it threw me into a whirlwind of what ifs, all of the what ifs that were in my life. And I had to go back home to Michigan to deal with his affairs. I was lucky enough to get there the day before he passed away. Um, but upon getting there and, and seeing his condition, uh, I realized that he had been drinking more than he had let on. And there was just an astronomical amount of alcohol that was left in his apartment building. And my family stayed behind here in Montana because at the time we just couldn't afford to fly my whole family out there right away. So I was left for three weeks in an apartment trying to deal with his affairs. And that's really where the alcoholism caught up with me and where I really started to use it as a coping mechanism. 
And from there, it just, it just spiraled out of control. I began hiding it from my wife, from my kids. And I'm probably what you would consider the extreme alcoholic as far as there's, there's no one drink for me. It was always 10 to 20. And then it just spiraled out of control where I had to switch substances and switch to harder, harder alcohol and harder liquor. It was actually cheaper too. And it was more easily to conceal just because of the smell. There wasn't really anything that anybody was picking up on. And I decided to really overindulge and just really didn't want to confront any of my problems personally or emotionally that I had dealt with my whole life. And that ultimately put me in the hospital um, back in 2020. And I was in the hospital for two weeks. I almost died from alcohol poisoning. My internal organs started to shut down. I don't remember the first week while I was there. I know that I went through a very bad case of the DTs or delirium tremens. It was absolutely horrible. Uh, my family witnessed me go through this process. I was borderline suicidal, anxiety, depression, just really didn't know where I was going with my life. And you would have thought that that would have been my wake up call is sitting in a hospital room for two, two weeks. And, uh, unfortunately, as you know, and probably the research you've done is, you know, when you, when you're put into a hospital for alcoholism, there isn't a whole lot that they want to invest into you as far as aftercare. So they hand you a couple AA booklets and they say, go to some meetings. You have a problem. And when you show up to your first AA meeting and they're on step seven and you have no idea what step one was, you get a little frustrated. So within the first week of being out of the hospital, I relapsed. And I had to go off to rehab. And that was right at the peak of COVID in August of 2020. And what had happened was is there was nowhere here locally that I could get into. Um, I am a disabled veteran. So I was trying to use the VA, couldn't get in. There, was, there were months of wait. So I found a, a treatment facility in North Carolina through a referral friend of mine, through family actually. And I was able to go down there for 30 days and get sober. And the unfortunate part is I went down there for everyone else and I did not go down there for me. Mm-hmm. And I came back sober, super motivated. And I checked myself into an outpatient program here with the local hospital. And I did another eight weeks of outpatient where I would go to class about six to eight hours a day for eight weeks. And after completing that, I really thought I had my life handled at the time until one day I came home and I was by myself And my wife and I had just bought a new couch and I went to move that couch, our old couch. And I found a full bottle of vodka underneath the couch. Mm -hmm. It was at that point, I remember shaking and sweating and praying and not knowing what to do. And I just, I wanted to just pour it out, but I thought, well, maybe this is my last straw. I'll never do it again. And I took a drink out of that bottle and I, and I did pour the rest out. But it was from there that I realized I, I was in real trouble. So I started going to meetings, really started to put trackers on my phone so that my wife knew where I was at. So she didn't think that I was out buying alcohol, pretty much locked down our checking account and our savings account so that my wife was kind of handling all the finances just so she could see where money was going in and out of. But I got really sneaky with it. And I took a, a new job with the government and it was just one day that I happened to be on base as a civilian contractor and it was staring me right in the face. And I, I'd been on and off again with relapse for about three months, not telling anyone about it. And 
this time I decided I, it's not going to hurt me if I just indulge this one time. And from there for the next four months, I went through complete utter hell trying to conceal the disease that I have. And ultimately it led me to, uh, losing consciousness on a Sunday afternoon after I drink, drink two pints of vodka that morning, just so I could get over the DTs. And once again, here I am on the floor of my, of my living room and my 15 year old daughter's trying to perform CPR and my wife's basically raking my, my sternum plate, trying to keep me awake until the EMTs arrived. And I remember the EMTs arriving and we live in a rural area here in Montana. We're about 20 miles outside of town. And I remember I could hear the helicopter coming in to land in our field because they were going to mercy flight me to the hospital because I wasn't breathing. And my sister-in-law, who happens to be the director of the mercy flight program, she's, a, she's an emergency room nurse. She showed up at my house and I begged and pleaded once I gained consciousness not to put me on that helicopter because I was so scared of dying on that helicopter but I wasn't scared of dying from my disease. So they arranged for me to get into a, to an ambulance. And basically that was a half hour drive to the, to the ER where they didn't keep me very long. They went back through my records and realized, Hey, this guy's been here before. We don't have, we don't have space for you. This was last October of 2021. COVID's still an issue. Basically it was, there's the door. They gave me enough meds to, to kind of sober me up. But at this point is where, I hit rock bottom and I, I lost that. I almost lost everything. Cause at this point, my wife and kids said, we can't, we can't keep doing this anymore. So that is when I had to move in with one of my best friends to try to sober myself up. That was my intention. And so I quit going to work. I called in sick and the disease progressively just kept getting worse and worse where I just decided that, Hey, I don't want to go out in the, in some awful form of suicide, even though it was on my brain and I had thought about it quite often, I just thought, well, if I drink myself to death, then everyone will just accept it. And that, Hey, he died from alcoholism. And that was where I was at. And I had a substance abuse counselor. I decided to call her as I was going through really bad hallucinations while living in his basement, driving to and from the liquor store, three, four times a day. And finally, she just told me, I'm going to, you're going to die. If you quit drinking, you're going to end up having a stroke or a seizure. So she's like, we need to get you to treatment. And about a week later, getting through all of that, I barely made it to treatment. Uh, I remember drinking that day very heavily to basically fly out to San Antonio, Northwest of San Antonio. I went to a recovery place there. And because there was still nothing here in Montana, the back weight was at least two, three months. And so I went down there and my intention was to go down there for 45 days, get sober. But this time I had something different happen to me and that I put myself before everyone. And this was the first time in my life that I was selfish. And I said, if I don't, if I don't kick this, I'm going to be and I'm never going to have a family again. And I'm not going to have anything to go back to Montana to. And that was the hardest part is being so low and being in this foreign, foreign territory that I've never been to before and the foreign landscape um, of, you know, Midwest Texas. Like I said, my intentions were to go there for 45 days and at 45 days, I talked to my wife and she's like, are you sure you're ready? And I said, no, actually, I, I don't know if I'm ready. And she said, well, I think you should stay longer. And my counselor that was there, she is my guardian angel to this day. 
she convinced me to stay till 60 days. And that was probably the best thing I could have done was stay till 60 days and ended up getting COVID while I was uh, in treatment. And so I ended up doing 70 days there, ended up having a huge spiritual awakening while I was there. But it's funny about this naked mind that you wrote. So as I, as I'm leaving treatment, one of the, one of the patients that I was there with, she was discharging the same day I was, and she had read your book while she was there and she handed it to me. So I had never read your book before. So I read your book on the way to the airport. I read your book all the way back to Montana. And then it took me about two days to finish the book once I got here. And I thought to myself, why, why was this not put in front of me so many years ago? And I, and I don't know if that would stop anybody from going down the path that I went, but the information that was in there and the perspective that you, that you put forth, it made so much more sense. And since then, I've given that book to three different people um, that I've come across with that I've been kind of in and out of treatment with. I'll show up to treatment here every once in a while at my uh, addiction counselor's office. I haven't been there in quite a few, uh, quite a few months, but I do still attend AA as much as I can outside of work. Um, but the book that I had given to a teacher, she absolutely fell in love with it. So she started to pass it on as well. Um, but it really opened my eyes to the written perspective of where you came from. And those are some of the things that they don't talk about in rehab in these treatment facilities is the that moment that you start to realize, hey, this is becoming an issue. And for you, I think what you've put out as far as your word and your message has just been so great, especially right now in a post-COVID world where a lot of the women I was going through treatment with were middle-aged women that had their, they had their lives together and it put them in front of a computer screen at home. And unfortunately that five o'clock glass of wine turned into a three o'clock glass of wine and turned into a 12 o'clock glass of wine. And next thing you know, you're in the same boat that I'm in where you're five o'clock in the morning and you can't get out of bed until you have a drink. So that's kind of my, that's kind of my quick story. Wow. Wow. What a journey. Just curious. And, and I think people are really interested in, in knowing and understanding, but can you talk a little bit about what DTs feels like? Yes. Uh, I can tell you what it felt like for me. And then I can also tell you what my family went through while I was in the hospital. So upon getting to the hospital, I was a 0.38. So legal limit being 0.08, I was pretty far, I was pretty far gone. And once I got later in my stay in the hospital, the doctor, this was my first, my first hospital visit of two weeks. He thought my, my baseline, just waking up in the morning was usually about a 0.2. And then by the end of the day, I was definitely over the threshold of 0.3. That's just where I operated at. And I was completely functioning. I was able to work, was able to have conversations. Uh, Every once in a while, I would, I would slur my words but I was able to, to hide that with other components of alcohol. I was a vodka drinker, so I would wait for everyone to start drinking wine and beer. And then I would decide that, hey, OK, I'm going to start hitting the vodka and then I will go ahead and I'll drink a couple of beers. And then everybody will wonder, why is he already trashed when he's only had two beers? But as far as the DTs go, I remember getting to the hospital and I had slept for a couple hours. And I remember I I woke up in scrubs and I went to the lounge and they had some food out there 
and I couldn't stomach any food. And I came back to my room and I, it, you know, when you're in those type of areas in those situations, I was on a psych, a psych floor. So those mattresses are plastic um, to keep from them getting soiled. And I went back to my, my room to try to drink some apple juice. And I remember the, I remember the, the mattress was moving. Something was moving inside the mattress. So I went out to the lounge and I grabbed a plastic knife and I proceeded to carve open the mattress, at least try to carve open the mattress because I, because there was bats inside of it. And I could physically remember seeing them, their faces up against that plastic biting at me. And that's where I really started to go into the, into DTs really bad and the hallucinations. And that's when they decided to move me from the psych ward to the ICU. And once I got to the ICU, that's where it really got bad. And that's where my family's told me stories of, I was being visited by demons, which that to, to this day horrifies me. I remember vividly, my mother-in-law had a tail and it had spikes and I was afraid she was going to kill me with it. Uh, there was swarms of gnats and bugs that were constantly on my face. Uh, I was constantly trying to tear out my IVs and I was very combative with the nurses until I got to a point where I finally started to come out of it. But in just hearing those stories, at first they were funny until I had to go back to rehab the second time. And then those, those stories aren't so funny anymore. And then talking with other people that have gone through it as well, just I remember when I was sitting in, sitting in my friend's basement the second go-round and living downstairs in his son's room because um, he shares custody with his ex-wife. And I remember being so paranoid because there was someone that was there every time I would open my eyes, but I could never see them. It was just like the shadowy lurking figure. And I started to go through paranoia and that it just wouldn't go away unless I drank more. So I literally was drinking myself to sleep just to get through the hallucinations. Wow. And then what about the spiritual awakening you had? So the spiritual awakening, I grew up, my mom is very close to God and I bounced around with religion as a kid, being a divorced family. My, my, my aunts and uncles were devout Catholics. So they saw once I got into my teenage years that I was kind of, you know, I was kind of the black sheep of the family. I didn't carry the same last name as all my cousins and I didn't have any brothers or sisters. So I was always kind of the other kid in the family. And so their idea of religion was that Ben needs help. He needs to go to church. So I would go to these Catholic services on Sundays, but I wasn't allowed to take communion and I wasn't allowed to kneel down. And there was all these things that I wasn't allowed to do. While I was in church. So I got really frustrated with it and I kind of just passed religion off. And then uh, I went off to, to basic training in the air force. And the very first thing they do is they give you an airman's Bible and you think the world's going to end when you're in basic military training, especially 20, 30 years ago, it was a little bit tougher than it is today. So you start to confide in, in your religion, if it's there, even not there, but you make it through it and you put that Bible down and you just say, Hey, I've got life. You know, I don't have any issues here. And then you get ready to get married. And we wanted to have a traditional marriage and want to get married in the church. And Hey, we found this great pastor, but he says, you know, you have to be a member of my church and you have to come to church and realize what the importance of marriage is. So we got close to, to God again, me and my wife. And then th slowly through attrition and us moving through um, from my job for the Air Force, 
uh, we got away from it again. And it seemed like every time I was in my life, especially these last two years, how many times I would wake up praying that I could just quit drinking. I would go to bed so drunk and so mad and I hated what I had, what I was becoming, but I could not stop. And I would pray every night, but nothing the next morning I would be right into another bottle because I was so sick. And it wasn't until this last time at treatment where I met a friend of mine that um, we stay in touch to this day. And we were actually at the dining facility at treatment and he was a diabetic. So he had to stay late to get extra food. And I stayed with him one night and he asked me what my perspective about religion was. And I told him what I had been brought up with. And he's a devout Christian that had gotten hooked on fentanyl, which to me made no sense. This was a married successful man, owned his own business in his late thirties. I just couldn't wrap my head around. How can this guy know the Bible back and forth and, and, basically be here addicted to fentanyl. And he kind of told me where he had been in his religion and where he was going. And after I told him my story, he said he wanted to pray for me. So I gathered up my stuff and started putting my plate together and my silverware to go throw it out. And he said, where are you going? And I said, I'm going back to my room. He's like, no, no, we're going to pray right now. And I'd never been in that situation before. And to have a man put his hand on my shoulder that I've only known for a week and for him to pray for me in that cafeteria. If I get choked up, I apologize, but um, it was one of the most amazing things that's ever happened to me in my life. It, I felt something that I had never felt before the cook. He came over and witnessed the whole thing. He cried with us. And from there, the next, the next morning I was at, I was at Bible study and instead, things started to make sense to me. And I was told that if I had invested myself in, into Jesus Christ, that my life would change. And it slowly started to change to the point where I was sitting in church on a Sunday, we were allowed to go off site for church. It was a volunteer program. And the local church that we went to was baptizing people of the church. And they asked if anybody felt that they wanted to get baptized. And I raised my hand. And the next thing I know, I'm in regular street clothes while everyone else is in bathing suits and I'm getting into a horse trough in Bandera, Texas, out in the middle of nowhere at this church. And I'm getting dunked in the water, self-proclaiming myself to Jesus Christ. So ever since then, my life has completely changed. My attitude, my perspectives, how I'm a father, how I'm a husband. It's, it's been absolutely amazing. Oh, that's amazing. How incredible. What a great testimony. And how have things been? Well, first of all, I have, I have another question, which is your level of, of sort of like ownership of this story, I think is really remarkable. Like I don't, I don't sense what I think is, is the worst thing in the thing that keeps us stuck, which is shame. And so I, I'm curious how you've come to that. Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, I struggled with that the first go round, the shame piece, all of the what ifs and should have, could have, would have police have been already been to my house. And I just could not wrap my head around what realistically, why was I still standing on this earth and why I had gone down this path? And I was, I was so ashamed, especially considering that I had put 
my wife and kids through this. And I put her family through this as well because they visited me while I was in the hospital. So I went into denial when I relapsed. I basically wasn't really ashamed anymore because the addiction had almost become a game at that point. I don't know if I was more addicted to the alcohol or the game I was playing of trying to hide the alcohol. So the shame piece, it was always when I was confronted. It was never just something I would sit in my own shame on the couch. Generally, like I said, it'd be late at night when I would pray and say, I just don't want to do this anymore. I want to be normal again. Or I want to go back to just being a social drinker. That's when the shame really would would sink in. But I guess where it really hit me is when I got to to treatment in Texas, um, it was a rough go just trying to get there. And when I finally got there, I slept for quite a while after I had been checked in. And I remember waking up, not knowing where I was at, how I got there how I got these clothes on, why am I wearing a diaper? Where is the bathroom? Who is my roommate? I don't know who he is. He doesn't speak English. At that point is where I really felt the kick in the stomach of what do you, what else do you have left? I mean, there's nothing else that you can do anymore. You've, you've ruined your marriage. You've, you've embarrassed your your children. They've, they've physically almost seen you die twice. Where are you going to go from here? And I, I just opened the door and walked down this hallway that looked like a medical facility. And I I saw an exit sign and I said, I'm just going to leave. This isn't for me. I don't deserve to be here. And I walked outside and it was this beautiful 80 degree day. And and there, and there was these four deer that were staring at me that were like the local pets. And I immediately thought I had died until the nurse came out and sat me for about two hours just to kind of hear my story and be able to just talk to them and say, you know, I'm really struggling. I don't know why I'm here. And that's where I think with this disease is the importance of finding that connection with some type of either mental health provider or just someone that you can confide in that where you can start to learn the why because I go to AA with a lot of people and a lot of them have been sober for 40 years and they're absolutely miserable because they never figured out why they drink. And so they've gone on the rest of their lives, not changing any of their habits or any of the things that put them to the brink of drinking. So they're, they're pretty miserable. And that was something that I had to do through my counselor down there was to figure out what the heck happened. Where did all of these these scars come from and why did I why did I put band-aids on them my whole life and never deal with them and that's when the shame started to go away is when I really dug deep inside and started to realize that I was not capable of dealing with trauma and hardship and I was willing to to take the next level and I was using alcohol as a coping mechanism and once I realized that I didn't feel so shameful anymore. And the regrets started to go away because internally I started to have this fire of if I can do this and I can prove myself, then all of that at some point in my life will go away. Yes. Is everyone always going to have the inclination that I could go do something or I could slip up? That's always going to be there until the day I die. And I understand that my wife understands my kids understand that. 
but this is the first time where it makes sense to me. Like I can physically and emotionally and spiritually tell you why I did what I did. And until you can find that common ground, it's really, it's really hard to stop, to stop drinking or to stop using whatever your, your coping mechanism is. And that's why I thought your book was so great because I think, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you were at that point where you, there's just not a lot of people that they have that, that light switch. And, and it's kind of spelled out in the book as, as far as where you get in your career, where are you going in your, in your timeline and your progression of where you can kind of see where the train's coming off the rails. And I wish I would have had that 10 years ago when I was partying still and going to all these exotic places for the air force, because we had conferences everywhere and it was, you just were supposed to go there and drink for a week. And that's exactly what we did. And I wish I could have been the guy that just said, Hey, I'll just have one and I'll go home. Cause I still to this day wonder, Hey, would I've ever have ever gone down this road? Wow. That's so, that's so good. It's so powerful. Um, so my other question was how, how is it with your family now? How have things been with them? It has been a very emotional ride. Let's just say that. Uh, when I went to rehab the second time, my youngest daughter, that's 15, she was 15 at the time. Um, she wouldn't talk to me. So I spent those 70 days there, never talking to her. I, I talked to my wife. I tried to talk to her every day or every other day. And then at about the 40 something day after we'd been talking, um, her birthday had just passed and they were getting, they were getting ready to go into to Christmas season. And the disease kind of caught up with me while I was in treatment and all of a sudden, I, I just started accusing her of every, anything I could accuse her of. Uh, I didn't like who she was talking to. I didn't like who she was having social events with. And it literally, at the time, it, drew, it pushed us so far apart. We didn't talk for almost a week. And she was so angry at me. And, and I thought I was going to lose her. Legitimately, I, I started to make plans of how am I going to be able to survive when I get out of here financially um to be on my own because she's not going to stay with me and i and at that point i didn't blame her and the addiction was telling me get out of there you need to go home and deal with things go home go home go home and i wasn't ready emotionally to come home based on what where i was at with with my addiction so it was almost like it was in the back of my my mind that i had to go home to make things right with her. And I had to work through that. I had to basically start ignoring all those feelings I was having. I really had to focus on myself, which for me, that's always been really difficult because I, I kind of put my family first all the time, no matter what I've done in my life and in my career, I always put them first. And this was the first time I had no control. And I really had to sit down in my faith because I had to tell someone else to take the driver's seat and it was really rough. And we found my wife and I found some common ground before I came home. Um, little does she know how much common ground that it was basically a car purchase for my oldest daughter. And my oldest daughter had reached out to me through text and had asked some questions about it. And it was a chance for my, my, for me to talk to my wife about insurance and the payments and things like that. And there was still a lot of animosity there for my wife, but it was a, it was a glimmer of hope for me. 
And I got home from treatment and my plan was to basically stay with my friend for at least a couple of weeks and so I could get kind of back into the normal sway of a swing of life as far as with the family, like maybe visit here and there. And I came home with COVID. So nobody wanted to take me. So I had nowhere to go other than the option of maybe going to a hotel or a motel. And at the time we couldn't afford it. So my wife graciously allowed me to, to come back and stay in the basement of our house. And I remember getting home and my oldest daughter gave me a hug it was very awkward because my youngest daughter ran to her room and she shut the door and she immediately started crying. And I didn't realize why until my wife told me that she hadn't heard my voice in two and a half months and she forgot what I sounded like. And that just, she's like, I, I didn't expect him to be back. And it was a slow turn as far as us coming together as a family. It was organized dinners out of the house to just kind of, get a chance to talk to each other. And there was so much anxiety and depression that my, that my youngest daughter deals with, not only from me, but she suffers from that as well. But I think I've just compounded it with her. So she's been in treatment for over a year or two, um, dealing with these issues. But I will honestly say that her and I are the closest we've ever been. I feel like what I say matters now. Um, whereas before, She's 16 now. She's very smart, extremely smart, and she could see through it. And she knew that there was something different about me. And, and now she sees the good of it. Um, she actually attends church with me now, which is totally something I never would have expected. We just got done with a hunting trip last week that we went on. Um, just things that I, that I took for granted in the past because I was just in this numbing state of alcoholism. And now I'm so happy that I can actually be there for them. As far as my, my marriage is, is probably the best it's been. We've been married almost 24 years in March. And I really, I really wish I had some do-overs. I really wish my wife could have seen me like this for a majority of our marriage, because I, I feel like I'm different and I'm better. I still have my, I still have my quirks, just like every other spouse, husband out there that you know, irritates the wife every once in a while, but for the most part, it, I have good intentions and that's what I didn't have before. That's amazing. That's really great. Well, thank you so much for sharing all that with, with yeah. us. And then I guess finishing up the last question is really, if you were going to go back and talk to Ben, um, during this, this journey of multiple different, you know, quote, rock bottoms, when, it felt like it was the last time and then it wasn't, or even just finding the vodka under the sofa um, and just tell him what your life is like now. What would you, how would you encourage him? What would you say? I think if I could tell myself anything, it would be to ask first, ask for help when you need it and to not take life so seriously, especially when you're growing up. I really encourage youth now that I talk to to find something they're passionate about and let that be their outlet. Because believe it or not, not every kid is addicted to their phone. There is something that they, they want to go do, or they have you know, aspirations of doing one day in life. And that's where I wish I could have focused on some things that I really wanted to do in life. Um, the military did that for me to a point, but at the same time, 
when I would get in my ruts, I didn't know how to deal with life on life's terms. And that's what made it really difficult. So now that I can look back, I would tell myself, it's really not that bad. That substance you're about to use isn't going to cure anything. It's only going to make it worse. You come from an addictive personality. As far as family members go, it's not a good path for you to go down. Because I don't think that there was ever a time, like I said before, I don't know if there was ever a time where I could have just socially drank and made it into my 70s and 80s and just had one. I think at some point in my life, it was going to happen. And it, it just so happened that instead of that Friday night, Friday afternoon drink that most people have after the week um, to kind of wind down, that ended up being that I needed to wind down from everything in life. I had to wind down from doing laundry. I had to wind down from working on a car. It was everything was so traumatic to me that it, that that overtook me. And if I could tell myself anything, it would be, hey, it's it's not that bad, and you need to work through it. And look at the the ramifications that it's going to have if you if you go down this road. Really great. Well, wow! Thank you so much for coming on and telling your story. It's been really incredible. Really appreciate it. No, thank you so much, Annie. Awesome. We are so excited to announce our newly recalibrated signature program, the Path Freedom Accelerated. This 90-day program is designed to make freedom from alcohol quicker, more accessible, and more affordable than ever before. Imagine if just 90 days from now you discover a new freedom without feeling like you're hanging on to willpower by your fingernails, without feeling deprived or like you're missing out, and without the shame, guilt, and blame. The Path Freedom Accelerated provides a guided, almost hypnotic sequence of content that speaks not only to your conscious mind, but also to your subconscious, actually changing your desire for a drink. Plus, you will receive daily accountability and support from our coaches and our community. If you feel like you have lost control of your drinking, there is a solution. One that's easier than you might think and doesn't involve rules, missing out, or deprivation. We would love for you to join us. Go to nakedmindpath.com to learn more. And as always, rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast as it truly helps the message reach somebody who might need to hear it today.